Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Acts of the Apostles, where this morning we're going to be looking together at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Uh, you can find that on you can find that passage on page 1073 in your Pew Bibles, or if you have one of your Acts journals, you can find it on page 22 and 24 in that journal. And I'll remind you, if you've not had the opportunity to grab one of these, there are still some available on the Fellowship Hall table. Uh, it contains not only the text that we're looking at, but uh, room for taking notes and, and, and writing down things there as we go through it. Last week we saw several things come out of this trial that Peter and John had found themselves involved in as they stood before the members of the Sanhedrin. They had been arrested after healing a man who, who had been lame since his birth and then proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the power responsible for that healing. After spending a night in the temple jail, they were, of course, summoned to come and stand trial before these men. And these members of the Sanhedrin were puzzled by Peter and John. It seemed to them that these men, these apostles, were for some reason unfazed at the situation that they had found themselves in. They were unafraid before this council of men, and they spoke freely the truth of the gospel with what could only be called uncommon boldness and wisdom. And so these leaders of the temple were faced with trying to understand exactly what was going on in this, in this situation, what had transpired. Because they could not deny that a miracle had been performed. The man who was known to all had very clearly been healed after 40 years of having no use of his legs. That much was undeniable. And the men responsible for that healing, at least in the eyes of the people, were now standing before the Sanhedrin testifying to the truth of Scripture without fear of repercussion or consequence. And so the members of the Sanhedrin, the elders, the chief priests, they began to ask themselves, why are these men so bold? These are untrained men. They are uneducated men. How is it that they could know these things? I mentioned to you last week that we begin to see this vivid contrast beginning to take shape between faith and fear between the religion, if you will, of the apostles contrasted with the religion of these leaders of the temple. And of course, they're not at all alike. One of the things that comes to the surface immediately is that these men, these members of the Sanhedrin, their religion is rooted entirely in the fear of men. They fear public opinion. They fear the possibility of the loss of their power and their position. And there's nothing whatsoever uncommon about their fear. 
Their chief concerns are also based entirely upon self-concerns. They only want what is best for themselves right now in the moment. And we can see that in the way that they try to reason through this problem that has been posed by Peter and John proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ for this miracle. They say to one another, what can we do now? They've certainly healed this man. The people are witnesses to it. The people will revolt if we punish them too harshly or too publicly. And so they decide to simply command these men a simple commandment. They tell them, we're going to let you go, but never are you to speak publicly of this man, Jesus Christ, again. You consider that with what we see in the faith of Peter, for example, that is on display here. Peter's greatest concern appears to be to offer hope in the midst of abject hopelessness. He has even put his own life at risk in this trial by speaking directly to these men of the salvation of God in Jesus Christ being available to them. Peter blesses his enemies by preaching the gospel of hope to them, even as they are bent on his harm. He's taken them to the scriptures themselves. The scriptures that these leaders, by the way, are supposed to know and supposed to be upholding. And Peter has shown them that indeed Jesus of Nazareth is undoubtedly the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. There is no fear of man at all present in what Peter is proclaiming to them. Why? Why is Peter so unafraid here? Because he is in possession of the God-given gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Peter knows God. And he is himself known by God. And because of it, Peter knows what God has done, and he knows what God is doing. Jesus told him about this very day when he was still alive and teaching them. We looked at it last week, Luke. Luke recorded it in chapter 21, verses 12 through 15 of his own gospel account. After the disciples had asked what the sign would be, that all that Jesus had prophesied was coming upon them. And Jesus spoke a word to them about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and famines. After he said all that, he said to them, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or withstand. And Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin here undoubtedly remembering those words. He's not afraid 
Because clearly, this is his father's world. He is in control. In fact, he's simply doing exactly what he had said he would do. Peter has been united to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. And here he is exactly where Jesus said he would be, using it as an occasion to testify to God's grace and his mercy to save the lost. And I told you last week, it's not simply manly grit that we're talking about here with Peter. This isn't just manly stuff. This is boldness and wisdom that are attached to true faith by the grace of God. This is certainly knowing that leads to heartily trusting. Not just one word, but all the words of Almighty God. This is biblical faith. The same faith that we are given to live godly lives in Christ Jesus right now in the places he's called us to live. And beloved, this should be tremendously encouraging to us. Do you possess this uncommon boldness and wisdom to serve the King of Kings? If you are His, if you belong to Him, if you've been given His righteousness through faith, then the Word of God says that you do. And this morning, in the text that is before us, we will get to see this faith in action once again. We've witnessed its boldness We've certainly benefited from seeing its wisdom. And now this morning we will look together at its source. So if you've not yet done so, please turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles and follow along as I read chapter 4. Again, I'll start with verse 23 and read through 31 this morning. Hear now the word of our Lord. And being let go, they went to their own companions And reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Lord, now look on on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that you'd bless this time together.
Father, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding into these things and that through the power of your Spirit, you would transform us through your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are told that following this trial, before I think what we must acknowledge as the cowardly Sanhedrin, Peter and John were threatened once again to stop speaking at all about Jesus, and then they were simply released. Peter had told them point blank that they would in fact, they could in fact, do no such thing. Remember what Peter said, whether it's right to obey you or God, you judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We must, says Peter, give testimony to what we know. And we know Jesus Christ and His righteousness. So we will not stop speaking of Him. We belong to Him. We, are, we both know and are known by Him. And certainly it was not the answer that they were looking to hear from Peter. Peter stands before them in God-given faith and makes everything they believe look like the lie that it truly is. Undoubtedly, at least in the eyes of the people, this whole thing has dealt a blow to their authority. However, fearing public opinion, which they were much more aware of and intimately involved with, not fearing Almighty God, whom they clearly did not know, they simply threatened them and said, go your way. What else could they do? These men were following their hearts. They were practicing the religion of men. And they were acting upon their greatest fear. So they released them. And we get a glimpse now of what biblical faith, that is true faith, does in the face of being granted this freedom. And I want to point out to you something here, again, that I said to you last week. Too often, I think, the the courage or the boldness of true faith is confused with the world's concept of grit. And that's nonsense. This is much more bold, much more courageous than simply rising above your circumstances or presenting yourself as much more than you actually are. This is knowing that leads to trusting. This boldness that is on display here is informed boldness. Peter knows God and he knows his word. We've seen that here in the book of Acts again and again. And knowing God and knowing his word leads Peter to the boldness of faith. He takes God at his word. So there's no need here for Peter to just go immediately back to Solomon's colonnade in the temple and preach the gospel all the while daring the authorities to do something about it. No. That's not where faith goes upon release from the circumstances that were making things very uncomfortable. We do not find here an introspective apostle Peter does not go off seeking to be alone with his own thoughts and worries. Where do he and John go immediately upon their release from jail? 
They seek out the church of Jesus Christ. Do you see that here? Luke tells us they went to their own companions. Now, I'm going to tell you, biblical commentators trip all over themselves, attempting to speak very dogmatically about exactly who these companions had to have been and what the number of them was. Was it the whole church? Most of them say it was not. Was it just the other apostles again? Most of them tell us it most likely was. I'm not sure at all that it actually matters. They sought out their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Luke tells us. They sought out their brethren, their companions. That is where faith in these men led them in their freedom. They did not simply rush to their families to be comforted from their brush with the law in the danger that they had somehow survived. They ran to their fellow servants in Christ. They ran to those who belonged to King Jesus. That is where they most wanted to be. And beloved, we talk all the time about this love for the brethren that is the fruit of the gospel. And certainly we see it here again, don't we? I want you to ask yourself something this morning. When the heat of your life gets cranked all the way up, what is it that you run to? When that diagnosis that is just so problematic for you and your family and your future plans is delivered, where do you long to be? Faith belongs with the body of Christ. Do you see that? I don't want to harp on it anymore here, but it's a question that we all must ask. And if the answer is not the church of Jesus Christ, if you would rather not let anyone or everyone ever see you sweat or expose any of the chinks in your so-called armor, my question is why? Why? What do you think that you're protecting yourself from? Why would you not run to the blessing of the kingdom and the resurrected king in the family of God? I need to move on. There's a lot to cover here, but I hope that you will investigate that question for yourselves in the days to come because it is a very serious question. Peter and John make haste to get with the church. They're fellow Christians. And they bring them up to speed on all that's transpired over the last day and a half and what the chief priests and the elders of Israel had to say to them. This morning, beloved, I really want you to notice what they did. And I want you to consider what they did not do as well. You understand, these men did not get away from jail, get away from the Sanhedrin, so that they could get before the church and complain. They did not lament their lot in life. This is not an airing of the grievances. This is not a session on plotting the overthrow of the leaders of the temple. In fact, this is not at all an exercise of thinking how they were going to conquer their fears or their anxieties. 
What did they do upon hearing of all that had transpired? And again, it really does not matter to me if this is 12 men or 2 men or 8 or 9,000 people. What does the church immediately do in the face of danger, trouble, and adversity? You see it, right? They run hand in hand together to the throne of King Jesus. Do you see it? They together with one mind in one accord hit their collective knees and they get before the throne of grace. They fall before King Jesus as one, together. There's certainly a sense here where if one member of the body is suffering, they're all suffering. If one member of the body is rejoicing, they're all rejoicing. They are together, running to their king in prayer. They are together praying in faith. Because this is what faith does. This kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a praying kingdom. And what does that prayer look like? Well, this morning I would like for us to look a little bit more closely at this prayer. And I want to just point out a few things here in the text that we need to consider. As always, we are, of course, merely scratching the surface here. There there is so much here for you to mine. I do hope that you'll take the time to look at this even more closely on your own in the days to come. The first thing that I would point out to you about the content of this prayer is that they are all very aware of who and what God is. Do you notice that? Do you see the way in which they begin in their prayer to sort of pull out all the attributes of God? They begin by saying, Lord, you are God. That alone is a mouthful. We could spend months just on those words. You alone are God. You and you alone reign supreme over the entire universe. You are God. As God, there is none who could ever remove you from from your throne. There is no created thing that can rise up and somehow throw you down from your reign. You are God, only you. Beloved, do you ever consider this in your own prayer? It should remind us. We didn't do it this morning. We did the Nicene Creed, but I was thinking of the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are God. And we rightly fall at your feet. We rightly live in utter dependence upon you. There is no other. You are God. You are higher than us. You are so far above us. You are God. Do you acknowledge that, not just with your lips, but with your heart this morning? Think of the implications of that beautiful confession. You are God. What could I possibly have to fear? That's just the opening words. 
And I told you his attributes are all over this as well. It would be impossible to miss his sovereignty here, right? You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. As God, you created all things. As creator, you rule over all things. Everything will bow before your majesty. You own it all. Everything is yours to give and yours to take away. You are sovereign. Certainly, there's a sense of his providence here as well, right? His omniscience. The fact that he knows all things. His mercy is here. His goodness is here. His name is here. His omnipotence is here. He's all powerful. Nothing stands in his way. His gracious revelation is here. He has told them by the mouth of his servant, King David. The prayer then goes to Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, which we already read this morning. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. You noticed the change in tense, right? Did you notice that from Psalm 2 to Luke's recollection of it from this prayer? The psalmist, King David, looking forward to Jesus says, Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? Why do the rulers take counsel together against God and His anointed? And here, after Jesus had come, after He had lived and died and rose again, Luke changes it and he says, Why did the nations rage? Why did the people rise up? Why did the rulers stand against the Christ? Again, we see this understanding of of the, the drama of redemption in solid biblical theology here with Luke. He's translating his present through the fruition of the promises of the past. And so this is not only a prayer that is rooted in who and what God is, but it's also rooted in what God has done and what he has clearly said. I think it's the second thing we have to notice here. This prayer is rooted in the Word of God. Do you see that? They read into God's Word and they see the killing of Jesus Christ as the nations and rulers ridiculously taking a stand against Almighty God. And they rightly note that it's an exercise in futility. You understand, this is not a why, oh why, why me, why us kind of lament here. This is not a complaint because of the power of those who have set themselves up against God. This is a legitimate question. Why would anyone ever do it? It's foolish. Who is like God to think that they would stand even a chance of ever getting in his way? No one. It's foolishness. It's the height of folly to even think it. The early church recognized these things. And again and again we see them remembering the words of the prophets, remembering the promises of God to his people, remembering the words of Jesus from his time with them. 
They've recognized their role in being witnesses and giving testimony not only to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to the very real hope afforded through the gospel. Resurrected life in him through faith. They recognize these things. They know these things. And they live in light of these things. And they credit this sovereign God of providence, this omnipotent God, this omniscient God, with doing whatever his hand and his purpose determined before to do. Nothing gets in his way. Nothing changes his course. Because he is God. This prayer recognizes both the bigness of God and the minuscule stature of fallen man. And looking to this God, they trust him wholeheartedly. They say, as you have said, Lord, so you have done. May God be glorified. So then, just to recap, we see in this prayer of faith, first and foremost, an acknowledgement and a reminder about both who and what God is. These are the things that faith, authentic faith, knows are true of God. His known attributes, His revelation. Secondly, we see here that in this prayer, this prayer is rooted in the truth of God's Word. This prayer takes into consideration what God has clearly said and what God has clearly done. Finally, this morning, beloved, we see in this prayer of a faithful church what it is that true faith asks of God. Again, I think it's important to point out what these fellow saints are not asking God for in this moment. And I want to warn you, it's challenging. Perhaps better stated, it's a convicting thing for you and I to consider. So I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this probably hits home for all of us. I want you to look at it. They're not asking that God would rout their enemies and eradicate them from the face of the earth. They're not even asking God to just silence these men and to cause them to lose all credibility with the people so as not to confuse the true faith of the gospel. They're not in any way going before the throne of grace and asking for God to restore them, the church, to an easier and much more comfortable life. They're not asking for material provision to build their fledgling church. They're not asking for protection from the whimsies of fallen man. No, in fact... Nothing in this prayer is directly for their benefit at all. What are they asking for? That Almighty God would give them boldness to stand before God and men and joyfully proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? I want to be clear with you here this morning. I'm not saying that there may not be a valid time when you or the church finds needs to ask for these kinds of things. But first things first. The thing. The most important thing is that God would equip His people to boldly preach the gospel 
so that broken men and women would hear the call to run to the arms of Jesus and find life. And please understand, they are not asking for the tools to make them into spiritual superstars. They're not asking for fame. They're not asking for clout. This has nothing to do with them and everything to do with the brokenness that they are surrounded by. The brokenness that they themselves know all too well. It wasn't very long ago these men were running in fear as they arrested the Lord, denying him to a servant girl. The brokenness that led to them being thrown into prison by men who claimed to be doing the work of God and doing it. They are concerned for even the souls of their enemies. And their prayer to God reflects that truth. We get so twisted up over nothing. These men are praying that the gospel would penetrate the stony hearts of the ones who are persecuting them. They're asking God to keep them faithful to their calling, to be his witnesses for the sakes of of others and for the growth of his kingdom. Testifying that Jesus and only Jesus makes sinners righteous through his precious blood. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came and he walked among us. That he put on this miserable flesh, sin accepted. That he lived and he died for us. That though he himself himself was blameless in the eyes of the holy law of God, that he went to the agony of the cross. And he took our punishment upon himself for us. That he arose on the third day triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. That he ascended to the heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father. And that he is now reigning, ruling until the time has come for him to come again and make all things new. That he now lives to intercede for us and be our advocate before the Father. This is gospel love for their fellow image bearers for their neighbors. And it is the sole thing being asked for as they stand undoubtedly knowing that their own lives are in peril because of their association with the name of Jesus Christ. Is that convicting? It should be. It is for me. They are putting the purpose of God and His kingdom far above their own measly comfort. We have to see it. How many of us pray this way? We get so caught up in self, don't we? Our prayers are often dominating with pleading to remove those things that make our lives so so hard, so difficult. To increase our comfort, you know, for the glory of God, right? To increase our ability to amass more stuff, to silence our critics, and throw down those who would even dare to speak against our majesty. But love, the fruit of the gospel, simply hits its knees and pleads with God for the efficaciousness 
of the gospel. Amen. Lord, let it be made effective through the power of your spirit. Lord, let it save those who have openly declared to be my enemies. Lord, spare the dupes of Satan in this life. Bring restoration to the hater of your grace and transform him or her by your glory, for your glory, by your grace. Do you pray this way? Why not? What could be more important than this? Because I'll remind you, this is the mission. This is what Christ has called us to do. It's interesting that of all the things that we would guess that should absolutely preoccupy the early church, the salvation of their mortal enemies would probably not even make the list. But this is how they pray. They speak the truth to God about who he is. They speak the word of God, reminding themselves of the beauty of what he has done and what he has said. They see the folly of sin ever thinking itself to be bigger than the God who is. And they pray for boldness to preach the gospel to everyone who so desperately needs to hear it. Especially their enemies. Those who openly hate. A church who places mission over comfort, salvation over buildings, seeing lives changed over family heritage and tradition. A church who seeks to save the lost through the power of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. And Almighty God hears them. Did you notice that? He hears them. And he shakes the very earth they stood on. And once again, he fills them with the Holy Spirit in an emphatic yes. Yes, I will do that. This is power. This is the power of the gospel that changes lives. Beloved, do you want to be a part of a church like this? We should. Because, beloved, we have inherited these things. These are the prayers of our fathers in the faith. This boldness and being witnesses to Jesus Christ, it's still our calling today. Not to build a church that suits our fancies. But to build the kingdom through the transformation of sinners' lives through the proclamation of the gospel. Can you imagine a church that prays like that? Can you imagine yourself praying like this? Beloved, if you belong to Jesus this morning, chances are someone did pray like this for you. I know they did for me. 20 years, I didn't set foot in a church. I didn't care a thing for the things of God, and I didn't like Christians. You are the sinner that makes up the content of so many hymns and songs. So am I. And living in appreciation for the grace of God and Jesus Christ looks like this.
Will you pursue it? Will you commit to praying for the souls of others before you look for comfort amid your own conflict? Will you look outside of yourself for that fulfillment in life that is just continuously managed to elude you. I pray that we will. Salvation should move us ever and ever closer to it. Faith that embraces the Lord Jesus Christ finds its fulfillment in loving God through extending His mercy and His grace and His love to others. What act could be more loving than praying that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ would transform the hardest of hearts for the glory of his name and for the building of his kingdom until he comes again in glory to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen.